Hello, and welcome to Queer as Fiction. My name is Jason. I'm Irene. And today we're going to be talking about 1996 Hollywood comedy, The Birdcage. Uh, so we do have a couple of content warnings for this episode. This episode features the use of a homophobic slur and swearing, both in quotes, although I also the swearing may also exist just in me saying it it also features mentions of homophobia and of the aids crisis so you may be wondering why we have irene here and not eli today and the reason for that is that this is not the first time we've recorded this episode uh unfortunately the first recording with eli and i had some audio issues and so we now have irene in as a fresh set of eyes and ears to listen to me talk about the birdcage yay (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, we may do this again in the future. I don't know. Yeah. Um, we'll see how schedules line up and that kind of thing. But anyway, so we are here to talk about The Birdcage. And so The Birdcage is an adaptation of a 1978 French film, which is called, and I apologize to French speakers across the globe, uh, La Cage au Four, which uh, translates to The Crazy Cage. Oh, uh, okay, yes which itself was an adaptation of a 1973 stage play by the same name. It was also then adapted into a musical in the US. Oh, really? Yeah, and not only that, the French film actually spawned two sequels. This was a weirdly successful thing. Yeah, and so it, it's yeah, it's kind of weird. Like, you know, to those who claim Hollywood is obsessed with unnecessary sequels right now, clearly... Yeah. <laughs> What happened in the sequels? Yeah, so <laughs> that is a good question. Uh, yeah, so the first sequel is about espionage. and What? Yeah, I, I sort of had a quick read over the Wikipedia summary, and basically uh, some documents are planted on, I believe, the character that corresponds to Armand. Okay. And he then has to go through being tracked down by all these people and then judged for his relationship and his lifestyle. Okay. Yeah, it's a bit strange. And yeah, then this sounds uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I have no idea. Um, I imagine it was, as with the first film, as we'll get into, quite a farcical comedy still. Yeah. Um, it doesn't seem to... It, it did have the same director. The third film had a different director, although it kind of gets back more to the tone of the original, where basically the Armand character uh, is forced to be married to a woman in order to secure a, um, an inheritance. Okay, so I'm sensing a theme here where Armand pretends to be straight. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically the plot of these movies. Yeah, and, you know, I, I personally believe that no sequels were necessary for this film. No. <laughs> like, I personally don't think the plot Armand pretends to be straight really stretched even for the whole first one. <laughs> well, we'll get into we'll get into that later. <laughs> we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, that actually segues nicely into talking about the plot. So, the birdcage centers on two families: the Goldmans and the Keelys. The Goldmans are a gay couple, club owner Armand and star drag performer Albert, while the Keelys are a straight couple, conservative senator Kevin and his wife Louise. When the Goldman's son Val proposes to the Keelys' daughter Barbara. Val asks his fathers to hide their gay identity for the weekend so his proposed in-laws can visit and give their blessing for the wedding to go ahead. The Keelys are desperate for a nice, straight, white, Christian wedding as one of the senator's political allies has been caught in bed with an underage black prostitute. 
Thus unfolds an increasingly farcical arrangement whereby Armand pretends to be a straight Christian attaché to Greece, and Albert becomes uh, alternately Val's uncle and then goes into drag and pretends to be uh, Val's mother. A dinner party is planned, relationships are strained, Val's biological mother is called in to play the part that she rejected decades earlier and then is running late because, of course, because it's that kind of movie. The whole thing is a bit of a farce from start to finish, with the thematic throughline being the irony that a gay couple more sincerely represents the ideals of the nuclear American family than a senator who is campaigning for traditional family values. So before we get into a bit of discussion about the context of this film and the themes and the social context, what did you think of The Birdcage? I'll be like completely honest with you, I hated it. I honestly, you can ask Alice for verification of this, the first time I laughed was about 15 minutes before the end. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I really hated it. I did feel, like I said, like the last like 10 or 15 minutes was quite enjoyable, but everything up to that point, I just couldn't stand. Okay. And how do you generally feel about sort of fast school comedies? So I think there's probably like two parts to my dislike of it. And one is that even if you took the whole queer thing out, I would have been fairly uncomfortable watching an extended dinner party scene where Armand had to pretend to be the cultural attaché to Greece to a conservative senator. Without the queer stuff in it, that would have made me uncomfortable. The addition of the fact that basically the whole joke there was how awkward and uncomfortable it was that these gay men had to pretend to be straight that joke just didn't work for me. And that was like the premise of the comedy, basically. (laughs) Which, like I said, and it picked up in the last sort of 15 minutes because at that point, Albert's identity is revealed and the kind of focus of the comedy turns around to the discomfort of this conservative family when they have to face a gay Jewish couple, basically. There was this, the first moment I laughed was this moment where Albert takes off his wig and... Louise is sort of there, like, t- talking to her husband and saying, they're both men, don't you understand? They're, they're both men. And he has this moment of silence, and he's like, this is, I can't stand it. They're Jewish. <laughs> it was just quite funny to me. It made me think of, you know, you get that thing sometimes where people are complaining about, oh, you know, diversity for diversity's sake in media. And they're like, what's next? A black disabled trans woman? (laughs) And it very much, it was that kind of thing where he just couldn't handle the fact that they were two of these things at once. Yeah. (laughs) And that was quite funny. And so that last section was genuinely like enjoyable and funny to me because the focus of the joke was on something I felt it was worth making fun of. Okay, yeah. No, that's fair. I definitely, I enjoyed this movie a lot more than I thought I was going to. I watched it a couple of years ago with some friends, and yeah, I sort of went in thinking, uh, I notoriously do not like cringe comedy. Yeah, I mean, same. I have hidden behind seats in a cinema before to avoid <laughs> uh, watching. That's a beautiful story. <laughs> That movie was, I, bl- I believe it was About Time. Okay. Which has Donald Gleason and Bill Nye in it. And yeah, I, I cringed in the cinema. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen like a cringe comedy in the cinema because that's how deep my hatred runs. <laughs> but I, yeah, I overall, I found it quite funny. I thought that the humour was a bit less dated than I was expecting. Okay. You know, it, a, a lot of movies that come out of the 90s 
I feel like I, I, I don't know what it is about the 90s, but a lot of things that are from the 90s are very, very specifically from the 90s. Yeah. I mean, I think this is true of any era. Like, if you watch a movie from any previous decade, it's the same thing, but it's just that kind of long ago that we accept, oh, this is an 80s movie, where in the 90s it's in that kind of weird twilight zone of retroness. <laughs> yeah, potentially. But yeah, so, uh, like, personally, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, so we have one positive perspective, one fairly negative perspective. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is good. Creates conflict, creates tension. I like it. So... Uh, Let's go into a bit of the background of this film and the production and uh, sort of what it represents in a social context. So this film was directed by Mike Nichols, who had previously directed uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate, which are films that you may have heard of. I've heard of them, but I know nothing more about them than that. Okay, so these are... These films were a pretty big deal in Hollywood, and those were, I believe, among his first films that he uh, directed. And he won Oscars, he won Tonys, he won Grammys, so this is a guy who, like, had a very, very successful career. Which I was kind of surprised by when I looked up, this, to me, seemed like a fairly slight film. Yeah. Um, And I think it is seen as such within his filmography. But I guess that kind of, to some extent, explains the all-star nature of the cast. Yeah. I mean, that is a lot of. There are a lot of big names in this film. You know, Ron Williams, Gene Hackman, Nathan Lane, Diane Weist, and then Dan Futterman, Callista Flockhart, Hank Azaria, and Christine Baranski. All like quite talented actors in their own rights. Yeah, and they all turn up in this sort of fairly trivial comedy film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that I think definitely for me, the performances did elevate the comedy. Mm. beyond what it otherwise would have been. I don't think that this movie would have been... I don't think I would have found this movie as funny if it wasn't Robin Williams and Nathan Lane, who are just quite talented actors. But anyway, Mike Nichols was never uh, openly gay in his life, um, and he did marry several women. However, there is a biography of bisexual photographer Richard Avedon, written by Avedon's close friend and confidant Norma Stevens which claims that Avedon and Nichols did have a decade-long affair. So, obviously, standard Hollywood disclaimer there as to, you know, we have no confirmation that this is true. Yeah, but to claim, like, a decade-long affair, that's kind of hard to lie about. Yeah, and we we will probably never know. Mike Nichols is uh, is now dead, as of a few years ago. But, yeah, it's definitely... I think interesting to think about that movie from the perspective of a like potentially closeted bisexual man having written it. Yeah. I did wonder when I was watching it. I did wonder about, you know, the writer and the director and like whether there were queer people involved in the making of this movie. And I don't think like I couldn't say, I could only say that watching it made me very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, and I think that may have as much to do with the fact that it was 20 years ago as it yeah. does with the potential presence or not of queer people involved in the production. Like it's possible that, yeah, he was a queer man and to him he was kind of, the joke there was him riffing on his personal experience of being a closeted gay man. Or a closeted queer man. Yeah, potentially. I guess. Um, and. I Yeah, I'm not sure. And yeah. obviously, yeah, we won't know. But just some kind of interesting context there. Of the main cast, Nathan Lane is openly gay and is married to a man. 
as far as I could tell, doing a little bit of research, as far as I can tell, none of the other major cast members are okay. queer. Yeah. So originally, uh, the role of Albert, which is eventually played by Nathan Lane, was uh, offered to Robin Williams. Oh, okay. okay. And he chose to take the role of Armand instead because he'd recently played Mrs. Doubtfire and didn't want to do drag again. Okay. Yeah. And it was really interesting. I watched a review, a Siskel and Ebert review of this film from the 90s. Yeah. Which was great because it's on YouTube, but it was very much grainy 90s TV footage. Yeah. And one of the things they talk about is how different that performance would have been had it been Ron Williams playing uh, Albert as opposed to Nathan Lane. Um, because I think Ron Williams much more over-the-top performer. Like, Nathan Lane obviously still does play that performance up. Yeah, And it yeah. suits the tone of the film, but I do feel like Robin Williams probably would have played it up an extra notch. I feel like if it had been played up an extra notch, that would have been too far. Like, <laughs> personally. Yeah, no, um, it already, like, to me, it already felt like, again, like it was making a joke of this sort of effeminate gay man persona. Mm. And to exaggerate that any further. Yeah. 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 And I mean, you know, if you want to see what that looks like, you can go and watch Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. Which I have not seen since I was about 10, and I have no intention on ever watching again. <laughs> there is absolutely no way it's going to hold up as well as it does in my head. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Anyway, so I want to talk now a little bit about the sort of context in which this film was released. So this film represents, to some extent, uh, a progression on the part of Hollywood and how they depict... Uh, queer people so in the 70s and 80s we saw a lot of doom and depression in terms of how queers were depicted in cinema um there's the famous quote from uh the boys in the band which is show me a happy homosexual and i'll show you a gay corpse yeah 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 and which is a quote that has rocked up in pretty much every article i read yeah no Um, one i've definitely seen a lot before too can i just ask though is there when you say the 70s and 80s were a lot of like gloom and depression Mm. in terms of queer film Mm -hmm. was there a change there with the beginning of the AIDS crisis yeah so I'm not sure uh, I didn't actually go too much into the 70s and 80s and Mm -hmm. the specifics of how that changed over time um I feel like from what I could tell it basically went from doom and gloom because of like 60s era McCarthyism yeah to doom and gloom because of AIDS and there wasn't there wasn't necessarily a tonal shift. The tonal shift actually occurs with films like The Birdcage. So once you hit the mid-90s, what we're basically getting is this kind of, and I use the biggest quotation marks possible when I say this, this kind of post-AIDS era. Where AIDS stops being, at least for queers in the West, it stops being an existential threat that's going to kill every single gay person. Let's just clarify here and say white queer people in the West. That That is also fair, yeah. Yeah, um, anyway, sorry. But yeah, like, the fact that medical treatments were becoming yeah. available meant that this was no longer something that, you know, at a certain point was looking like there weren't going to be any more yeah. gay men, or at least, like, the, the vast majority of them were going to be dead. And yeah. so, yeah, you do see, I think it's interesting to see that we have this series of films. So we have The Birdcage in 1996, uh, the object of my affection in 1998, and the next best thing in 2000. So there's three films that all feature uh, what are still stereotype, but much, much more positive depictions of gay men. 
Yeah. And all these films are about specifically gay fatherhood, and they all feature gay men who have happy endings, and all of them, yeah, are very kind of positively stereotyped. And you see that that, like, progresses forward into the early 2000s. You have shows like Will and Grace, Mm. um, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Oh, yeah, I remember watching that. You know, like, it's this progression where, like, not exactly the ideal queer representation that I would want, sitting yeah. here in 2018, but certainly, given what we had come from, was a massive step forward. Yeah, and I suppose with that context, then, you take my discomfort at this kind of, you know, hour and a half of poking fun at gay men in the closet, and I guess the fact that there are gay men there, that the fact that they're closet- being closeted is shown as an uncomfortable thing, and... They get this happy ending. Yeah, and I is, think... Is, yeah, probably much more positive than it looks from where I was sitting. Yeah, and specifically when you think about the fact that the, the thematic through line there is that once they are not closeted, everything works out fine. And yeah. And stop going wrong. Yeah. And that, you know, they are depicted as the ones who are kind of in the right. Even though the, it's interesting that the, the Keelys don't end up really being villains in the film. No, they get kind of, especially towards the end, they get kind of oddly sympathetic. Yeah, and I kind of, it's interesting, I've heard a few different perspectives on this, but I do kind of enjoy the fact that we never saw, like we never had to really experience a scene where there was just a torrent of homophobic abuse towards the end of the film, which kind of is a very place they very easily could have gone with this film. There was that one conversation where Kevin Keeley is talking to Albert, who's pretending to be the mother, mm. about how homosexuality is this moral threat to society. And that's about it then. There's yeah. that one line and then there's an awkward silence and the conversation changes. Yeah, so you have these three films and they're all yeah featuring these uh, stereotyped but positive depictions of gay men. And... This represents, to some extent, a degree of gentrification experienced by the new queer cinema movement that was occurring in the early 90s. Um, I think you guys talked a little bit about this in the Australian Queer Cinema uh, episode. Was this sort of new queer cinema movement? Yeah, I think we did. I think we talked about... Because we definitely talked about kind of queer film as this sort of like activist setting in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, gentrification is probably an accurate word. I feel like it moves away then almost, like away from... Yeah, and so I, I definitely encountered it. I, I cannot take credit for that term. It came up in an article that I read. Okay, um, yeah. And yeah, it definitely seemed to be the case that where a lot of the movies that were coming out, even in the early 90s, um, out yeah. of the new queer cinema movement, were very diverse featuring a lot more queer women, a lot more gender-diverse people, a lot more racial diversity, and also a much more radical message. Yeah, and that was sort of my feeling on it, is that at this point with the birdcage, it gets kind of... And it's weird to say that it's been depoliticised, considering the context of that film. Like, the political (laughs) position of the people who made this film is very obvious, but they have kind of excised a chunk of society out of it yeah i mean it's definitely it is the comfortable you know white middle class 
yeah. version of this kind of politics where, yeah. you know, as long as you exist within mainstream politics, somewhere on the left, you're going to agree with the heroes of this film over... You're, you're going to agree with the Goldmans over the Achilles. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is kind of interesting to see that, yeah, we've got these uh, films that are characterised by defiance and radicalism, and then moving into the mid-90s, we start seeing these films that are all about kind of acceptance and, you know, learning to live with, learning to live with each other. Mm. Um, which, you know, obviously aren't necessarily bad messages, but the way that they are put forward is not necessarily actually accepting and actually learning to live with each other. Yeah, like, yeah, it's that kind of we move towards accepting and learning to live with with each other messages, but only such a small subset of queer people are allowed into those stories that it's not really a story about accepting, it's a story about what's acceptable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah, and it's interesting because, yeah, you, you do have these three films and they're all... These are all big-budget Hollywood films, like Jennifer Aniston and Paul Rudd are in uh, The Object of My Affection, and Madonna is the star of The Next, uh, the, the next Best Thing. And yeah. so, you know, these are big Hollywood films, and The Birdcage makes a lot of money um, in 96. I don't remember exactly how much, but it did, like, do quite well for itself at the box office. Yeah. Um, I'm almost surprised we didn't see an adaptation of the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Almost surprised. But, yeah. uh, I mean, this is actually, funnily enough, the reason why it got an adaptation, like, the reason why you have a big-name director attached to this adaptation is the French films actually did quite well in the US. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Like, the subtitled French films did quite well in the US in the uh, late 70s. That's kind of weird, honestly. Yeah, which in its I... own right. Is <laughs> not something that you would see now, really, like... Yeah, like... I don't think... I don't remember the last time we saw a French-language film doing well at the US box office. It was probably, like, Amelie. Yeah, true, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, I can't think of anything since then, no. Is... No, Blue is the Warmest Color Col- is not in French, is it? I don't I never know. Saw I never it, saw so. it, no. <laughs> <laughs> we, are, we are terrible gays. Yeah, we're clearly bad gays. Anyway... <laughs> So to uh, take sort of a step forward and a step back. So yeah, this film and these other films around it, yeah, they kind of represent somewhat of a step forward from the kind of bury your gaze trope whereby queer characters are not allowed a happy ending. Unfortunately, that hasn't really proved to be a particularly durable step forward. Yeah. Moving into the 2000s. And it's also, it's that kind of, it's a step forward for, I guess, straight depictions of queer people. But we were talking before about, like, queer-made queer films Mm. in sort of the 70s and 80s. Mm. And I know when we had our Queer Cinema in Australia episode, Mm. and a lot of that was quite, like, positive and quite diverse and quite... I remember Jesse was talking about one in America where basically they went around and just interviewed a bunch of queer people and it was a documentary. And it was just this diverse range of people where they interviewed them and sort of talked about their lives and their experience of queerness. And so what's a step forward in terms of straight people's stories about queer people is not really a step forward from the kind of political queer cinema that we were talking about before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it represents a step forward in terms of what you're seeing in mainstream 
cinema rather than a step forward translating these independent uh, fringe cinema movement narratives into a mainstream movie. They're instead just taking a step forward that kind of is without that kind of context. Yeah. Um, And I do think, yeah, these films do represent, to some extent, an effort to use this kind of burgeoning queer audience as a new market and marketing to them. You know, like, these are movies that are saying, hey, look, we are now getting to the point where we can acknowledge the fact that there are gay people. Yeah. And they are a reasonable market share, and they will want to see this film. But obviously, that is going to disproportionately target white... Middle class. Cis gay men. Yeah. Who are, yeah, middle class or above. And so, it's probably not all that surprising that we see three films, amazingly enough, featuring white gay men who are middle class or above. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what the reception was of this film among queer people at the time? I did go to a little bit of effort to find, you know, hot takes on this film, and I didn't really find much. I think mostly because it's not really deep enough to be particularly... Controversial. Controversial in any respect. I just came across a lot of people being like, yeah, look, we might not be particularly hyped about this if it came out now, but for the time it was good. And I'm I'm sure there was commentary at the time that was a bit more uh, critical and talked about how it wasn't really subversive. And I'll get into a little bit of the discourse about um, the ways in which it's maybe not (laughs) particularly subversive later. But yeah, a lot of the reception at the time was very much not controversial and interestingly enough not really controversial from a progressive perspective and also not really not all that controversial from a conservative perspective oh okay (laughs) i think possibly because the french film was already in the public consciousness so the people who were seeing this film were maybe already aware of this plot and so it just sort of came across as oh this is a nice like american spin on this with some actors who i recognize yeah okay so if there was controversy the controversy had been kind of looked after in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, potentially. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm really not sure. But yeah, so I just want to get back to uh, the idea which I raised earlier, which is sort of the second aspect to this film, not only this idea that it maybe represents to some extent this kind of gentrification of new queer cinema, but also what it represents in terms of being, as I said before, giant air quotes post-AIDS. The way that this... All, the, all three of these films deal with fatherhood, and I think it's really important to recognise that context where fatherhood was something that was becoming, even, you know, if it was in, still incredibly difficult, it was something that was becoming a bit more accessible for gay men Yeah. Um, as we move through the 90s. And I think that's a really important context to realise, because not only is that obviously a big step forward in and of itself, but also for some gay men in the 90s, fatherhood represented a way to explicitly combat AIDS because it was, you know, in it was a way of having a legacy. Oh, and yeah. And in the face of, of such an apocalyptic scenario, this kind of represented, hey, we can move, we can move forward, we can have a future. Yeah. And, yeah, there's a quote from Dan Savage, which is, like, considering what the last 15 years were like, perhaps that future, referring to fatherhood, is the ultimate status item for gay men. And obviously, Dan Savage says a lot of things, don't necessarily agree with all of them, but yeah, just, I, I found that quote 
really interesting in terms of talking about how we then see these three films that, you know, obviously three films might not sound like a huge trend in the context of uh, modern queer cinema where we get, you know, new queer characters on TV every other week, but three mainstream Hollywood films coming out in, you know, five years is a reasonably distinct trend in that context. Yeah. Like, my immediate response to that kind of fatherhood is the ultimate status symbol for a gay man that's just a very weird thing to say. That's a very weird way to speak about children. I mean, absolutely. And Dan Savage is a weird person. He is a weird person. So, I don't <laughs> But yeah, I, I think that that idea um, that these hopeful films about gay fatherhood are kind of a way of combating yeah. that narrative of death that surrounded the AIDS episode. Well, not narrative, the reality of death. Yeah. Is kind of interesting in terms of the context that this movie came out in. But yeah, so to now get into, I think, what we've been kind of skirting around the edges of in our discussion so far, which is the idea of why this maybe didn't translate into a consistent stream of queer content in Hollywood, and maybe the reason for that being the fact that this movie doesn't really express a particularly authentic queer experience for many people. Yeah. And, you know, what we're seeing is that in all three of these films, queer identities that fit existing cis-heteronormative patterns of behaviour. Yeah, and I definitely thought that right at the end of the film when Albert's identity is revealed and what Val says is he pulls off the wig, pulls the wig off Albert and says, this is my mum. And that's never kind of, no more depth is gone into there. That's just his mum. Yeah, I have some thoughts about Albert that we'll get to at the end, but yeah. I... Yeah, you've got these apolitical, uh, fairly wealthy men who are white and who fit an existing sort of heteronormative relationship pattern, right? Like, you've got this feminine creative type and this very masculine club owner who has a mustache and yeah <laughs> you know like as much as Rob Williams he, he's almost a little bit of a caricature of stereotypical masculinity in this film but yeah he does even when he's not acting straight he is still very much the more masculine yeah uh, man in the relationship yeah no it's obvious that it's a relationship that we're kind of presented with like this is the man, and this is the woman in this couple, and it just happens that the woman is a man. Yeah, basically. And yeah, they're also very desexualized in their relationship, I found. Yeah. Like, f- as far as I remember, I don't think they ever actually kiss, maybe once or twice, but it's certainly not. I don't think so. Yeah, like, usually their affection is kind of... They, they do... I did like that they got some kind of emotional scenes. Um, there's a scene, I believe, maybe around the middle of the film, uh, maybe in the first third, where they're talking about some sort of legal agreement to share their belongings. Yeah, where they're sitting on that bench as the cruise ship goes past behind them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I did like that they got that kind of emotional connection. But yeah, you do see that they do, they don't really... While their relationship appears to be loving, Armand and Albert are not afforded even a hint of a sex life, which, to me, does kind of strike me as a bit of a glaring omission in a farcical comedy. Yeah, I mean, especially when you think about, like, Armand goes to see Val's mother, Mm. and their whole scene is intensely sexually charged. Like, she spends that whole scene being like, oh, just... 
unbutton your shirt, you know. <laughs> and the whole thing, like the, you know, the implication of sex there is very much what drives that scene. And it's never there again. It's only there between those two at that one time. Yeah, and it just sort of strikes me that in a straight version of this film, where the thing that they are hiding about their identity is something else, yeah, you would have had a scene in this film, not necessarily with that couple, but with maybe a different couple, where someone walks in on someone else having sex. Like, that is just a pretty classic lowbrow joke that you include in this kind of film yeah or someone walks in on someone in a situation that looks like sex but it's not yeah, yeah. even even something like, and we don't even get something like that with armand and albert no which... we only get it with armand and val's mom yeah and i mean i think to some extent it doesn't feel like a conscious omission so much as something that just didn't occur to them that they could play that joke between two men yeah yeah potentially but yeah so all of that is to say that this movie kind of exists in a little bit of a state of denial. You know, if we think back to that idea of parenthood as the saviour of gay culture, it doesn't quite work because it's not really accessible. And, you know, I said before that, you know, gay fatherhood was becoming becoming a little bit more accessible, but it still largely wasn't accessible, particularly if you weren't wealthy and white and well-educated and, you know, with all the kind of privileges that come along with that. Yeah. And... Even in this film, you know, it's it's still so reliant on the whims of straight culture. Like, in this movie, it's never really explained how or why exactly Armand got with Catherine, um, Val's mother. It is a little bit. They have that conversation, which I remember thinking when I watched it, I was like, wow, this is some clunky exposition. Because it's <laughs> the two of them alone in a room together telling a story to each other that they're the only two people who have experienced. Yeah. And you're kind of like, why are you having this conversation? You are the only two people in the world who already have all this information. <laughs> but you do get that. And it's basically they were in a performance together and then... He basically seems to have been like, I'll give having sex with women a go. See what the straights are raving about. That's basically what he says. Yeah, yeah. but like, And that's the whole explanation you get. Yeah, but, you know, not much of an explanation. And on the other hand, it is stated that the situation is not replicable. Like, that Val is a miracle. Is how yeah. He's referred to by, I can't remember whether it's Armand or Albert, but one of them refers to him as yeah. our little miracle, I believe. Yeah. And so all of this is kind of coming at the whim of straight culture. And this is especially, um, obviously, I don't expect you to have seen the other two films that I've been referring to. Yeah. But both of those films also feature this idea that uh, gay men can be really great fathers and to some extent represent potentially better father figures than straight men. But you should only go for them when there aren't alternative options. And so yeah. both The Object of My Affection and The Next Best Thing are very explicitly like this because they feature women as protagonists who have gay best friends who they get to act as father figures for their children. That's such a weird thing to be like a recurring trope, honestly. <laughs> yeah. And... Like, especially in like a weirdly kind of heteronormative setup where they're still like okay and there's the mum and the dad and the child the dad's gay but other than that it's exactly the same chill chill i think there's a different version of this movie where the fact that albert is a drag queen is a more subversive thing but in this movie it does kind of come across as more of an excuse to have him act more like the mother yeah and i definitely that's one thing i felt about this movie is that it had that very kind of 
we talked about this when the whole same-sex marriage debate was going on quite a lot. This sort of idea that queer people and straight people's experiences are exactly the same other than the gender issue. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where And that's very much what's happening in this movie, where it's like, look, no, there's a father and a mother. The mother's a man. But other than that, everything's the same. They respect family values. They just want their son to get married and be happy. And it's very kind of everything they do is completely socially acceptable, except that one of them is a man. Yeah, and this was definitely the trend in movies. Yeah. There were a couple of other films that I feel from memory weren't about gay characters, but featured gay characters and also played into this exact thing where... I think one of them, I can't remember what the name of the movie was, but one of them had a gay couple as the next-door neighbours. Yeah. And it was just, yeah, they're the gay couple, but they're also the next-door neighbours. And so, you know, they fit into this existing kind of paradigm. Yeah. And if you ever look at, like, the gay couples in those contexts, the gay couples are always, like, extremely kind of couple next door. They're like... They live next door. They'll, like, come over and bake, your, bake you a cake when you come, you know, when you move in. And they'll look after your cat or pick up your mail when you're away. <laughs> and that kind of thing. And there's no space for them to do anything subversive, you know. They're not running a left-wing reading group in their house. <laughs> yeah, definitely. They're, you know, a suburban, like, white suburban picket fence couple, except they're both men. And, yeah, there's kind of an acknowledgement within this film of this fragility of the state of queer fatherhood in the will in the plot itself right so in the willingness of especially armand to go along with subsuming his own identity for the sake of his son's marriage yeah and yeah one of the so the main article i used to uh write my script for this episode was actually a thesis that someone wrote which was about 200 pages (laughs) and it covered a lot of ground yeah Um, i can confess i didn't read all of it Fair enough. But uh, I read quite a bit of it, and it was really compelling. And one of the things it talked about was this idea of always, uh, all of these films make sure to place straight relationships on a pedestal. Mm. And that's what's happening here, right? Is that, you know, Armand is sacrificing the presentation of his own relationship and his own identity because, obviously, it is much more important that his son is able to marry the woman that she wants to. And obviously, you know, there's no real reason why a grown man and a grown woman cannot get married. She isn't a grown woman. Oh, isn't she? No. When In the very first scene where you see Barbara talking to her parents, Hmm. they say something about how she's not even 18. Oh, I totally missed that. (laughs) I mean, I probably didn't miss it at the time. And I think that's part of why he has to get this whole situation involved because he does need their permission. Yeah, okay. But regardless... I mean, the point still stands. Yeah. I watched the whole <laughs> first part of this movie being like, wow, Val is an asshole. Wow, why would you behave like... Why would you expect that from your parents? That's an appalling thing to ask someone. Yeah, and, like, and the thing is that the movie never really presents it as an appalling thing to ask someone to a yeah. large extent because it's kind of just expected. Yeah, it's presented as something which is, like, difficult for Albert and Armand, but not unreasonable for Val to have asked of them. Yeah. Which 
is very much not the case and I didn't feel it was the case and it took me like most of the movie to forgive Val for doing that for long enough to like not want to turn it off every time he walked on the screen. (laughs) I was like quite, especially in that there's an early scene where Armand and Albert are talking and Armand's like, no, it's fine. We can teach you to act like a straight man. We can do that. And they're in the cafe and he's trying to teach him to eat toast like a straight man. <laughs> that scene is, I, I, like, I found that so funny. I found that so uncomfortable. I mean, I think that it's was, like That was, no, that was genuinely, like, upsetting to me. Like, to me, it, yeah, to me, it felt like Albert was, ups, was genuinely upset by that. And it's hard to tell because obviously... They're both playing these kind of melodramatic gay man mm. stereotypes. It's hard to tell how much of their emotion you're meant to read as genuine and how much you're meant to read as like play acting. But to me, in that scene, I was quite upset on Albert's behalf. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm literally about to get into that. I mean, what? Yeah, we see in this film that Armand very quickly goes from uh, this quote early in the film where he says. Yes, I wear foundation. Yes, I live with a man. Yes, I'm a middle-aged fag. But I know who I am, Val. It took me 20 years to get here, and I'm not going to let some idiot senator destroy that. Fuck the senator. I don't give a damn what he thinks. And then, like, quite soon afterwards, Albert is saying, maybe it's too much to introduce me as his mother on the first visit. Could you tell him I was a relative who dropped in? Val's uncle, Uncle Al. And Armand says, oh, what's the point? You'd be Val's gay Uncle Al. Yeah. And Armand very quickly kind of gives up on the idea that they should defend the status of their relationship. Yeah, and I thought that as well, is that, yeah, that turnaround is rapid, and I think that turnaround is rapid, like, it has to be for plot reasons, basically. Yeah, well, and I think it's also interesting because, and this gets into what you were just talking about in terms of feeling really uncomfortable on on the behalf of Albert, Yeah, is that, yeah, the implicit threat to that status of their relationship kind of makes Val as much the villain of the story as the in-laws. Because, I mean, the in-laws are oblivious. Yeah. And, you know, are portrayed as being incredibly oblivious and, inc- and fairly incompetent at, like, sort of actually being able to deal with their bigotry in real life. Yeah. Um, where Whereas Val, you know, his and insistence the... and Armand, in effect, acting as his accomplice... Um, yeah. to a large extent, in terms of trying to force Albert into a straight dynamic where either he plays a straight man or isn't present at all, and that those are the two options that are presented to him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, kind of make them the villains of the story, because they are effectively the antagonists that kind of have to be undermined by the end result of the film. Yeah, and especially you get that part at the end of the film where everything's come out, and they're all kind of holed up in the living room together. Mm. And it's the senator and his wife and Albert and Armand and the two kids. And they're all sort of holed up in the living room together like, well, what are we going to do now? And they're poured drinks and kind of... And it's this very weird scene where I was sort of looking at it and I was like, well, you're obviously dealing with each other all right now. You could have had this conversation at the start rather than put your fathers through this. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I find that quite interesting. Yeah, there was one thing I was going to say. And when I was talking about that, yeah, that scene where he tries to teach Albert to act like a straight man. Mm. And then a couple of scenes later, Val is talking to Armand, who's just put his suit on and is like looking at himself in the mirror and saying, I look like my grandfather. Mm. And Val is sort of saying, can you 
just try not to gesture too much. Try not to walk around too much. And there was this very obvious parallel, and I kind of expected that they'd be going somewhere there where Armand realised what he'd just done to Albert, and they never followed it up. Yeah. They never went anywhere, but to me it was like this, you know, in-your-face parallel. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely it's definitely the same thing, where what Armand is doing to Albert is then done to him by Val, but... Yeah. And this is where I mean that Armand effectively becomes Val's accomplice. He never really pushes back against that all that yeah. much um, in that middle portion of the film. Yeah, I think, yeah, this is a good place to talk a little bit about um, Catherine, who is uh, Val's mother Yeah, in the film. Because I think it's interesting that if you see Val to some extent as the villain of the film, I think that's really important in terms of how you then look at the way that Catherine comes into the film because uh, she refers to herself explicitly as, you know, not much of a mother and she's a career-focused woman and she's clearly rejected that role and yeah. hasn't d- doesn't seem to have played that role for Val uh, in his upbringing. Like, regardless of the fact that obviously Val has two fathers, yeah, she doesn't seem to have made all that much of an effort, like, as far as it's presented in the film, to be an active presence in his life. She doesn't seem to have met him before this, does she? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not even... I, as <laughs> as yeah. we've kind of established, you've seen this film a lot more recently than me. Yeah. But when she comes into the house, she's like... And she sees Val, and she kind of says, oh, you must be Val. And there's this sort of brief moment they have yeah yeah and i think that that's really important to recognize because then you start to see val as even more of a villain in that respect right because not only is he removing a bit of agency from his fathers Mm. he's also removing some agency from his mother because she has she has decided that she is not like involved in this child's life and you know he has parents yeah and he's saying no you need to come and be involved yeah come and be my real mother now this. that it, yeah, now that yeah. it's now that it's convenient for me, you need to come and play this role, even though it's been that that has never been the case previously, and you know I've never like we've never had this relationship previously, and yeah, I found that kind of interesting in terms of how you've basically got the two mothers effectively in the forms of Albert and Catherine, who both kind of get the short end of the stick in mm. terms of where the plot goes and i think that makes to me the moment at the end of the film when the senator asks how many mothers do you have and val says just the one all that more important yeah because to me that is the moment where i'm like oh he has turned he has turned and he has realized what he's done and he said no i need to acknowledge not only that albert is my parent but also that catherine is not yeah, no, definitely. That moment is probably about the point where I started finding anything enjoyable in this film at all. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely the feel-good part of yeah, the film. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and I do like that we still get a good amount of comedy with the whole drag club scene and yeah. the journalists and all that kind of stuff. The, the, there is some good comedy there, I feel, in those last 15 minutes. So yeah. No, I'm glad that you got a little bit of enjoyment out of this. I did. I enjoyed the last, like, yeah, 15 minutes of the film. And prior to that, I think the only thing I enjoyed was the receptionist at Catherine's workplace. It's this very, like, ditzy-looking blonde girl. And she's reading Nietzsche. <laughs> and it's very enjoyable because Albert is sitting in the reception room as mm. well. 
and they're just kind of looking across at each other and he occasionally like drops something or does something agitated and she'll glare at him and then look back down at nature. <laughs> and um, I just found that very enjoyable, but that's completely irrelevant. No, that's right. Yeah. There, are, there are some good little details <laughs> yeah. in this film, I find. I actually, this is even more irrelevant. All right, um, go on. But probably my one of my favourite gags in the whole film not because it was all that funny in the context of the film, but because it was very funny because it made me think of you and Alice, <laughs> is the the, bowl, the soup bowls. Yes. <laughs> I did. I was listening to them. They describe them and they're like, she's like, these two young Greek boys are playing leapfrog. And whoever's, you know, sitting beside her is like, boys and girls. There are girls on my plate. Don't you have any girls? <laughs> and I've definitely had this exact conversation with Alice over the coasters where we were like, homoerotic. All homoerotic, and then we went through them all, being like, "No, I think that one's a woman." Not really clear here. No, those two are definitely both boys. <laughs> yeah, and I just, I just cracked up when I was going through. I, I think I'm not sure if I knew about your coasters when I first watched this film. I probably did. Um, you may not have. I may not. I, have. I can't remember exactly when I yeah. watched it, but I definitely went as soon as I started researching this film. It came up as a scene that people enjoyed, and I just laughed. Yeah. A lot. I, I don't feel like you will have this issue. No. I was definitely <laughs> also watching that scene where Barbara's mother asks, oh, are they Greek? And I was sort of looking at it thinking, you could have just said yes. You didn't have to make a deal out of this. You could have just said, yes, they're quite famous Greek vases. We've accepted for some reason that classical Greek homoeroticism is more classy than the modern kind. You could have just said yes. And instead they made this whole deal out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Although I do think there is kind of a deal made in this film about how even things that probably other people in San Francisco would not consider to be gay, Val is very paranoid about, like, even the slightest trace of anything that's not very, very straight. And, you know, I think that comes from the fact that, obviously, the senator's coming from... I don't know what state he comes from. I'm assuming it's, like, Ohio. But, like... With no offence intended to anyone from Ohio, but, like, you know, he's obviously not coming from the West Coast and coming to, yeah, coming to San Francisco and knowing, presumably having his own idea of the reputation of that city. Yeah. And you definitely see Val being like, you know, no, we can't have these decorations up or we can't have this up, and it's just kind of like, I mean... I wouldn't have thought that was gay until you pointed it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and even now that you pointed it out, I'm not really seeing it. But yeah. <laughs> Although, to be fair, some of the things that people think of, like, maybe that was just, at the time, that specific thing was associated with being gay. Maybe it was, yeah. Um, I think that... Oh, I'm trying to remember if it's this film or if it was something else I saw where there was, like, a particular soft drink or something that was explicitly, like, a sign of being gay. I don't think it was this film. I don't remember that. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I think it might have been something else I watched, but recently. Mm. But yeah. So I do want to wrap up in terms of talking about the uh, characters and the themes in the film. Talk a bit more about Albert, because he is probably the most interesting and simultaneously hardest character to watch in this film. Yeah. And, you know, he's consistently sort of feminized throughout the film in a very stereotypical way, and... There's never, never really any real suggestion that this informs his gender identity. Yeah. It's, it, there are a couple of lines, which I'm going to read out now, that, like, specifically in one scene, where you, if you kind of, if you put that in a modern film in 2018, 
I think people would say, oh, okay, this character is in some way genderqueer or potentially trans and in the closet. Yeah. But, like, it's the 90s, and having watched a cast interview with Ron Williams and Nathan Lane, they very clearly weren't thinking about the gender identity politics of this character. So the scene I'm talking about is where Albert says, you know, don't give me that tone, and Arlan says, what tone? And Albert says that sarcastic, contemptuous tone that means you know everything because you're a man and I know nothing because I'm a woman. And Anand says, you're not a woman. And Albert responds, oh, you bastard. Yeah. And, you know, that, like, out of con- Like, if, if, you, if you throw that scene into a sitcom in 2018, people are like, people would be like, ooh, okay, where's yeah. this show going to go in terms of talking about gender identity? Yeah, and yet they never do. Though I think, and I don't know, like, I mean, we're in the 90s and I don't know where kind of the mainstream is at talking about queer things in the 90s. But up until, like, well into the 20th century, you get this kind of blurring of the distinction between trans people and same-sex attracted people. Do you mean the 21st century? No, I still mean the 20th. No, you do mean the 20th I do mean, okay, yeah. yeah, I just don't know where this sort of stops being a thing, Mm. where you get that kind of blurring where you'll get a woman who is attracted to women, kind of reading that as some innate masculinity that she's got. Yeah, absolutely. And And vice versa, yeah. Yeah, the converse existing for men. That's almost how I felt about this, that they just kind of assumed that the femininity came with the the gayness here. Yeah, and I think that's kind of baked in as a result of the fact that it is an adaptation of a 70s... Yeah. Like an early 70s French play. I think, you know... 20 years later, you maybe had a little bit more nuance in terms of how we saw gay male couples. Maybe not a huge amount more, but maybe a little bit more. But, yeah, given that this was that kind of adaptation, you do kind of see that. I'm not necessarily certain, and I'm certainly not the person to talk to about what the line is between a kind of queer reflection of gender roles and reinforcing gender stereotypes. Yeah, yeah with the way that you depict gay men. To me, this probably errs more on the side of the latter. Yeah, to me, definitely, I think it falls on that side. And I also felt like, especially for that sort of first third of the movie, before the senator and his wife show up, Mm. that the whole comedy of the movie is Albert and the way he behaves and the way he's kind of hysterical and melodramatic about everything, which is very... Like, multi-layered bigotry to me is how it was, where first it's this kind of gay man stereotype, which is being made fun of. And secondly, the stereotype there is very much a negative stereotype of a woman. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so to me it was kind of, you know, three layers deep in bigotry, and I was (laughs) like, why am I watching this film? Yeah, how many layers of bigotry are you on? (laughs) Yeah. I think to some extent that is undermined by where the movie takes that yeah. in terms of Albert's femininity and his rejection of traditional masculinity is presented as heroic. And it's explicitly the way that they get out of the final problem, right, is the fact that they all dress up in drag. Yeah. You know, and like the fact that that is the solution to the problem at the end of the film, whilst they may not, may, may not do a particularly good job in the individual scenes of portraying a more feminine man without it just becoming the butt of the jokes, I did, I did enjoy the fact that, like, 
thematically at the end of the film we do get we do see that being you know something that is positive and something that's not it, the, the message of the movie wasn't Albert has to learn how to you know be a bit more masculine in order no. to be a proper father instead it was kind of more embracing who he was in order to be and this is where you know it kind of comes back into mm, problematic territory where it's he has to embrace that in order to become Val's mother okay I mean <laughs> I think the thing with that is that for the whole movie, Albert is that one person who's very sure about who he is and how he presents and, you know, like, mm. Val has kind of come to them and been like, all right, I need you to get Albert out of here because there's no way Albert can act like a straight man. I reckon you can do it, Armand. So you're going to stay and be my straight dad. And when Albert is in the picture, yeah, he's not going to act like a straight man. He's does it in drag. Yeah. And Albert and... is, yeah, Albert is essentially the one person in this film who is never really, I don't know how to say it. I mean, obviously he's outside his comfort zone. But he's but... never uncomfortable. And yeah, that is something that once you actually get to the dinner party, Albert is the one who negotiates everything and keeps the conversation flowing and the Keeleys love Albert. Yeah. And, you know, it's Armand and Val and Barbara who are really struggling. In the end, my overall thoughts on this film is that I can't really get a read on how I feel about this film as a piece of queer media. I think as a film, it was reasonably funny, reasonably lighthearted, didn't have a huge amount of complexity to it, but that it was fairly endearing and ends on a pretty good note. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, say. you disagree, particularly in regards to the first three quarters of it. Yeah, um, it does. Yeah, end on a fairly positive note. But to me, one just I think my sense of humor and this film's sense of humor didn't line up. And secondly, as a queer person, it was just very uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, and that's absolutely fair. And yeah, I think yeah. In the end, I, I did say earlier that I felt like the humor kind of held up a bit better than I was expecting. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, for a okay, 90s film. Sure. But I think, obviously, it is the case that the queer representation doesn't. Yeah. In that way. Um, you know, if you released a film like this now, that would not go down particularly well. No. <laughs> yeah, I think there's also just something in it where, like, when we were talking before about that scene where he's teaching Albert to act straight, where you were like, no, I found that hilarious. And I was like, no, I was very upset for Albert in that context. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, I think to me, I was yeah. upset. Like, I, I felt for Albert, but also did find it kind of funny. Yeah, no, I think you're right in that, especially given that context of sort of coming out of the AIDS crisis and everything, this probably read at the time as a very positive portrayal of gay men. Yeah. Which was probably unusual at the time, but looking at it from 2018, I'm definitely, I watched it with you know, no historical context or anything like that. And I watched it and I was like, what is this mess? <laughs> yeah. Why am I here? Fair enough. Um, and yeah, I do think that to some extent, both the fact that it is a fast school comedy. Yeah. Um, but even more so, I think maybe it's association with the French original. So the Siskel and Ebert review refers to the fact that, like one of the things that they were a little bit disappointed by was that it kind of hews very close to the original. Okay. And they were saying, you know, pretty much the only real difference is you get a little bit more information about the senator, and the senator is obviously a different character in the French original because he's not an American. 
yeah. conservative senator. And that's obviously based on, you know, the family values movement being a really big political movement in the 90s as a kind of counter to Bill Clinton. In yeah, yeah. But I think, yeah, that that association with the French original and the kind of hewing very close to that thematically and plot-wise, I think that does kind of neuter the impact of the engagement with political discourse that it has. You know, you mentioned before how it's kind of surprising that for a movie that is so explicitly political, it's very apolitical. Yeah, yeah. You know, the movie is making a political point, but none of the characters, with the exception of the senator, have any real political views that exist outside of their views of the specific situation that they're in. Yeah. I think it... To some extent, maybe Catherine gets a little bit of that. Yeah, so I, I don't think that this film was really pushing the envelope. No. In any respect. It was, whilst it may have been a step forward, it was a, it was a very gentle one. Yeah. So that's about all that I've got on this film. Uh, any final statements that you'd want to make? I feel like I've probably said everything I had lined up at this point. All right, cool. I think. So with that, we have been Queer as Fiction, and I'm Jason. I'm still Irene. (laughs) (laughs) I have been for the whole hour. If you would like to get in touch with us and give us any suggestions on future episodes for this series or for our main series, uh, Queer as Fact, uh, you can contact us at Queer as Fact on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. Yep. Or you can email us at queerasfact at gmail.com. You can also uh, give us a review on iTunes. We really appreciate uh, reviews on iTunes or on other podcasting platforms. They allow us to get more exposure and to get this podcast uh, accessible to more people. Yep. Which we love. Yay. (laughs) And we love the people who send in reviews. We will read them out on air because we love you. Yeah, but not in this this episode. No.